Amen. Amen. What a beautiful song. I love, love, love that song. Because it's all about, it's all about waiting for the coming of the Lord. And you can just feel it. I, my, favorite, I, my favorite version is, is by Haley Westerna. She actually sings it in Latin. And although I don't speak Latin, but with the subtitles and the Latin, you can just almost, it's palpable. You can feel the desperation of God's people in the Old Testament as they waited for hundreds and hundreds of years through, through the falling of their kingdom, through exile, through silence from God, waiting for this promise to come through, the desperation of it. And we, Advent is really the same for us. It's about waiting. We are not waiting for the first coming of the Lord. We are waiting in that same sense of desperation for the second coming of the Lord Jesus to bring us out of this tension. In the big overarching scheme of the Bible, Advent, the waiting of Advent, it's about the meta-narrative of God coming, returning, and abolishing death and bringing in our new life in the kingdom forever. But that's such a big idea. It's such a grand idea, waiting, you know, waiting for the abolition of death. How do you even put that into your day, you know? So in the reality how our waiting feels in real life, our waiting, the Advent waiting for us can honestly be just making it through a super difficult season of life. It can even come down to making it through one extra hard day. Even maybe just one extra hard morning. Maybe minute by minute. And so Advent, the waiting of Advent isn't a waiting in... in, in, in in despair, it's a waiting in hope. When we realize what it is we're waiting for, we're able to take that meta narrative and put it into our own stories, we, and we start waiting as we learn to wait for the right thing. Our waiting can turn from struggle and into joyous expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises. So that's what we're going to be doing in, in, in this Advent series is talking about how that big narrative comes into our everyday life and helps us to make it through even just one really tough day. Uh, and so we'll start with the beginning. We'll start at the very beginning of the Bible when we lost the kingdom. And so would you please stand now as we read from a section from Genesis 2 and also into Genesis 3. This is God's perfect and inerrant word. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden... In the east, where he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree that's in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat? of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the both of their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the mirror it is to our souls. We see ourselves in this story. We see the temptations that we face. Lord, we see how it is that we want to be like God, but that we don't have the power to be like God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us, Lord, to be, to be satisfied with what you have created us to be, to be creatures who adore you, and to give up the foolishness of trying to be gods, trying to be like you and try to be gods for ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us the beauty of Jesus through this. Lord, as you give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word, and as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I was researching, getting ready to do this sermon, and I Googled, I Googled, why does everything have to be so hard? (laughs) And you know what I got? I got 10,000 billion hits from every sector of life, 10,000 billion articles from the HuffPost to, uh, you know, every, every, every imaginal magazine from Psychology Today, everybody's chiming in on why it is that everything has to be so hard. There was a billion gifs of different movies where the actress with tears streaming down her face in this awful moment of life is saying, why does everything have to be so hard? I mean, but, but seriously, have you thought about this? We just take it, but why does everything have to be so dang hard? Everything, our work, everything that we do. <sighs> Why does writing a sermon have to be such an excruciating experience? Studying for tests, working, 
relationships, anything. I mean, everything is so hard. If you look on a grand scale of life, everything that humans have ever done, the grandest achievements that we've ever accomplished all fall apart in time. Think about the Great Wall of China. This massive undertaking. How many people died building that wall? And now, I mean, there's sections of it that are recreated for tourists to come and spend money, but much of it is just in shambles. It's just dust with some bricks sticking out of it. Or the pyramids. The pyramids were covered with polished white granite that shone like the sun, and they did something. We don't even know what they did. We don't even know how they were built still, and yet now they're They still are pointed, basically, but they're almost rubbles in the desert. Nobody even knows what they were. You know what? One day, if the Lord doesn't return, New York City is going to be like that. Rubble. Somebody will discover it and be like, what was pizza? But on a personal scale, on a personal scale, why does everything have to be so hard? Why do relationships have to be so hard? Why are there a thousand Christian books on, on, on how to fix broken relationships? Why is, it so, why is it so hard to love people, even people that we love? We're in fight, conflict, constant conflict is just always waiting brokenness in our work we work so hard to get things done and then half the time it just unravels before our eyes why is it that if I take a banana and leave it on my countertop it rots and disintegrates why just because just because that's how the world is. Maybe you say, that's just how the world is. But why? Why is everything so dang hard? Well, the shocking answer to that, the biblical answer, is, is this. <laughs> because God made it that way. But he made it that way for our good. And really the answer the answer to why that is, why it is that God would make the world this way is really the story of the whole Bible unfolding. But it really starts here in the Garden of Eden where, the, we, where we, lost, we lost the kingdom of God. It was within our grasp and we lost it and got this instead. And so let's start here. We're in Advent season. We're going to start here with kingdom lost as the backdrop to the beauty of the kingdom that God is still offering to us so we can recognize what it is we traded in. What, it is, what did we trade the kingdom for? Uh, just the awfulness of what happened in the garden, what really happened in the garden of Eden, and why it is that everything has to be so hard. So the big idea today, the thesis, the one, the, the one big idea through this passages, through these passages is this, that in the trial of life, We can go our own way or we can trust in the wisdom of God. In the trial of life, we can go our own way or we can trust in the wisdom of God. Now let's take that apart, one part at a time uh, first. In the trial 
of life. I'm going to read again this first part of Genesis 2. And so the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. When we think about when we think about what really happened in the Garden of Eden, there's a, there's, I think a lot of people think that the Garden of Eden was perfection. We lost it, and then our, the project of mankind is to try to get back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. But that's not really the case. The Garden of Eden wasn't the final destiny of mankind. It was the beginning. It was very good, but it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. Uh, we were meant to get beyond what the Garden of Eden was to get uh, the kingdom of God. Um, the garden was very good, but it wasn't the kingdom. Instead, it was a trial with the promise of the kingdom, but also with the threat of death. And so to figure out what is happening in Genesis 3, we have to background it with Genesis 2 and understand what it was happening in the garden and what God intended. And so here's the Cliff Notes version of what happened in the garden. I'm kind of going to run through this, not, not take too long on this, but... The garden in the Bible is presented as God's sanctuary temple. Throughout the prophets, even Ezekiel looks back at it and talks about the Garden of Eden being the holy mountain of God. It's, it's looked at as this, this perfect place, this sanctuary garden, temple of God, where Adam was placed as the king over all the earth and as high priest to God to protect, to keep, to guard the Garden of Eden from evil. Uh, And God set him in there with everything they could ever want to show, to show that God is our great provider and God is our great protector and our strength. They had amazing kinds of food, more food and fruit that we don't even know of anymore that they could eat. They had procreation. Amen? Amen. They had companionship. They had fellowship with God. They had dominion over all the earth. They had the entire earth to explore and unlock its secrets and do everything that God intended us to do to bring out all the goodness of the earth. They, Adam and Eve were unequaled in beauty in all of creation in their faithfulness to God. But not to stay that way. Not to stay that way. They were uh, not to forever be in the garden, but their task was to win the kingdom of God, the union of heaven and earth, to transform all of it into the perfect realm for everyone as our champion. So, and what did Adam have to do? In the garden, in the midst of the garden, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was tasked to not eat of that tree. The tree itself really describes what it, what, what it was meant to do. The tree itself represents the trial that Adam had to undergo. To stay away from the tree 
meant that he trusted God to know what was good for him, what was bad for him, and to stay within his right-sized realm. But to eat from the tree meant that he would claim that power for ourselves and to, to trust in ourselves, to know what is good for us, what is evil for us. That was really, that is what's at stake. That's really the thing that's on the table in the Garden of Eden. Does man, do we have the power in ourselves to know what's good for us and to know what's bad for us? Do we? You ever seen that movie Supersize? You know what I'm talking about? The guy takes a, his experiment, he seeks at McDonald's for a whole month and he gains 50 pounds, he gets heart disease, he gets type 1 diabetes. Uh, you know, he just, his whole being just becomes a wreck because he loves the Big Mac, it's yummy and it's right now and it's sexy and he wants to, and he, he eats that instead of good food, broccoli, things that are good for us. And that, the movie in itself, is an analogy of all of our appetites. That's just kind of how we are. Like it or not, we want the Big Mac. We don't so much want the broccoli. Right? The Big Mac's sexy. The Big Mac's tastes amazing. It satisfies our desires right now. But then down, down the road, bad. We don't want the broccoli. Broccoli's not so sexy. Broccoli's not so good. But down the road, it creates health, right? And that, that appetite, our, our food appetites are really reflective or an analogy of all of our appetites. We can see through that. If we look at the things we desire, we have to admit the fact that our appetites are not inclined to the good. Maybe we can have good moments, you know? We can, you can really get on the, get, you know, take control of yourself a little bit, but overall, if you look at the course of your life, it's not that we're as bad as we absolutely could be. When we talk about total depravity, we're not saying that we are absolutely as evil as we possibly could be, but that evil infects every part of our life and that every, all of our desires, all of our appetites are inclined towards the bad. And that's a hard truth. It's a hard truth to read, to recognize that, and it's part of the reason why it is that everything has to be, or everything is so hard, is because we want the Big Mac, we don't want the broccoli. And I'm doing, in my own work, I read a lot of these productivity books, you know, it's like try to learn how to like work faster, harder, better, get more done in less time, and when you do that stuff, when you're really watching yourself, when you're really paying attention to what you do and the decisions you make and the way you spend your time every day throughout the day, what you come to realize very quickly is that I make a lot of really bad decisions. <laughs> when I get super honest with myself, it, what is blocking me from achieving the things that I want to achieve, I have to recognize that I am my own worst enemy. That really, I'm, my desire for the immediate gratification overrides my desire for long-term good. It's just something about me that I'm constantly working and striving to overcome. Maybe you recognize that in yourself. 
And so now, back to the garden. Summarizing. Adam and Eve, they're presented with this opportunity to either trust God or to trust themselves. Behind door number one is crush the head of the serpent, expel evil from the garden, say, God, you know better than I do what's good for me, what's bad for me, and then win access to the tree of life and the kingdom of God. Or door number two, to trust the talking snake. And if they do that, they win death. They win death for all of us and sin and misery and everything we experience in life. The suspense is killing me. What are they going to do? Point two. Point two is we can go our own way. Well, we know how the story ends. We just read it. They decide to trust the talking snake who tells them that they can be like God. Why, why would they do that? Well, to have, to have a heart that inclines towards the bad, towards the evil, means in one way to have a heart that wants to be more than it really is, to blow ourselves up, to believe things that aren't true. And so part of that is that we are inclined to believe things that aren't true uh, when they will make us bigger than we truly are. So now let's listen. Let's listen to the first lie again. This is from Genesis 3. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The real temptation in the garden was to, it was presented to Adam and Eve to transcend what they really were. To transcend from being creatures who were in submission to God and in, in, in reliance upon God for life itself, for power, for everything, for the, every breath their lungs took. And instead to try to be like the creator, to be like God. And so they thought that they were choosing life. They believed the lie. They thought they were choosing life, but it was actually death. Because to be like God, first of all, means to be absolutely overwhelmed. What if I told you, what if I told anyone any of you guys in here that you could be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, all you had to do was step in the ring with the current champion and fight him? And then I said, and all the people, anyone who tells you otherwise is really just afraid that you'll beat him up and make him look bad. No one would believe, you wouldn't believe that, right? Because you would understand that you could not step in the ring with a heavyweight champion and when you would be overwhelmed by his training, by his power, by his being the heavyweight champion of the world? Or what if I told you that you could win American Idol, all you had to do was just show up at the finals and go up on the mic and sing? Now maybe some of you, 
Maybe some of you have great voices and you could actually pull that off and Simon would give you the thumbs up and you would be the next sensation. But for most of us, we would go up to that mic, we would be overwhelmed. We just wouldn't have the ability to sing. It would be an awful, awful and terrible experience. And that is what is happening in the garden. Part of the reason why, it is, why everything has to be so hard is because we try to take over things that only God can do. We try to do things that are way beyond our capacity as creatures to pull off. <laughs> Not the least of which is to be like God. To be like God and deciding for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. Uh, you know, the Bible lays out in detail that God created us. God created the whole world God, in his wisdom and power, knows how life works best and has laid it out for us. And, and I can tell you from my own experimentation that whenever I went against that, it turned out bad. I was overwhelmed by the consequences of that. And in God's mercy, he allowed me to feel those consequences as an act of mercy to turn me away from that foolishness and back to him. Sometimes we try to be like God by forcing our own will over God's will, by getting it in our mind that we have to have something in a certain way and just doing everything in our power, whether it's right or not, to get that over and above what God has for us. And sometimes he'll let us do that, and then we get that thing. Who's ever fought so hard for the thing you thought you had to have and then you got it, and it was a total train wreck? story of my life. Amen? And so part of the problem, part of why everything is so hard is because we try to take things for ourselves that only God has the power to do. And another part of why, uh, why it's not a good idea for us to try to be like God is because taking that power for ourselves, trying to be like God means separation. It necessarily means a separation from God. I have one of my best friends in the world right now is on life support in, in multiple strokes. He's on a breathing apparatus, a breathing machine to keeping him alive. Uh, and if you've ever had you know, a family member in that position, there's a good chance that it will come about when his wife will have to make the call as to whether or not they're going to leave him on or eventually, they're going to pull the plug. Maybe he'll miraculously pull out of it. I hope and pray that he does, but maybe he won't. If you've ever been in that situation where there's a family member who's on life support and it's got to the point where it's not going to help anymore, you have to make that awful decision. The power of the life support system, when you pull the plug and the power of that system keeping that person alive, ends... The person continues for a while, continues for a while under their own power, and then eventually they succumb because they don't have the power to keep themselves alive anymore. And that is what essentially happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, when they took upon themselves rights that only God had, it was rebellion, it was revolt against God and who he was. They weren't giving thanks to God. They weren't honoring him as God and God, as a perfect and holy judge, 
to not incinerate the world in its sin had to pull his presence back. And we are now in a state of exile, a separation from God. And the separation, the symptomatic, the symptoms of that separation, of God's pulling his power, pulling his spirit out of the world in the way that it once was, is, are, are the curses described in Genesis. Pain and sorrow and travail entered into our lives as God's power left and we are left on our own resources. The world itself became broken. The life that was infused through the earth producing abundantly broke and became hard. And even our own bodies, unable to keep ourselves alive, began to decay and fall into disrepair. The reason why I can't keep a banana on my kitchen counter is because God has made the world such and his power of spirit and life have been drawn back such that matter does not hold itself together. It decays and disintegrates and falls apart. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. God has made it that way. And so, here it is. The aftermath of the fall It also has an internal aspect. In the sadness of our exile... And in the fear of death, the fear of the looming death that we see approaching us, we start grabbing for all these little things, that all these bad decisions. We start grabbing for the Big Mac instead of the broccoli to help ease the pain of suffering that we feel in the right now. And as we do that, it causes us to conflict with each other and war with each other. And our, that's why relationships are so hard. Because we're selfish, because we're afraid, because we're hurting. Whether you realize it or not, subconsciously, everyone feels this separation, this exile. And in the fear of that, in the sadness of it, we're all grasping for these little things that are going to make us feel okay right now in the hopes that it's going to be, it's going to work or give us just a little bit of satisfaction right now. And then... The awful part is it's a massive, it's a big double whammy. First we have the fear and the, the sadness of exile and that makes everything really hard. And then on top of that, to, to try to make things better, to alleviate the pain we feel from that exile, we start grabbing for all these little things and fighting each other for them and breaking our relationships and even the light that, that we have begins to fade out. That's tragic. It plays out all the time, not just here in the garden. It's just the story of mankind. I mean, there, I read this C.S. Lewis quote today that, that the history, history of humankind is the sad story of, God, of man trying to find satisfaction in anything other than God and it failing over and over and over and over again. Each one of these little things that we reach for, that we grab, that breaks our relationships are like little deaths that can add up. I have friends, good friends, who I'm absolutely convinced are believers 
and yet they're like ghosts because they become so upset with God and in their anger and frustration at God for not doing what they wanted him to do when they wanted him to do it or for God allowing these things that they didn't want in their lives and they're angry, they're mad, mad, mad at God. They've gotten into this feedback loop, this cycle of trying of trying to recapture some satisfaction in life by grabbing onto these little pieces of death and it's gotten just so bad that they're shells. It's real. Sin is real. Pain and sorrow of it is real. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we are doomed forever to live through the cycles of death and decay in the fallen world? That it's total futility? That just over and over and over again we can expect decay and disintegration and sadness and death in everything we do? No. There is a way out. And the way out is the third point, that we can trust in the wisdom of God. We can trust in the wisdom of God. Now, maybe you're listening to all this and you're saying to yourself, why would God do that? Why, why would God, why would God even put Adam and Eve through a test? Why, how is that even fair? Why would he let the earth suffer under the curse of separation from life? Is he, is he mean? Does he not love us? That's the first response all the time, isn't it? Did, you know, in Sally Lloyd-Jones' story about the garden, it says Eve, for the first time, when the snake tempted her, for the first time in her life, she wasn't sure if God loved her anymore. That was the lie. The reality is that God does love us. And he's done these things as the shocking answer is that he's done these things for our good. First of all, there are just these there are these big cosmic reasons why God is allowing world history to unfold as he has decreed. And these are big cosmic reasons that are just way above our pay grade as creatures to really get. There's part in Ephesians 3 where Paul says, Paul says that through the church, through God's saving of, of people, bringing people into life through the church, he, it says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, be, may, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, these councils of angels and divine beings in the heavenly council in the unseen realm there's a purpose that God is working out in the, in, in, in the unseen universe to show his goodness and his beauty to all creation, the ones that we can't see that are above us, way above our pay grade to even get or understand. But there's some things that we can understand. First, we can understand, why would God curse the earth? to let us know that this is not our final home. It was never, ever intended to be. 
At the end of the story, when Adam and Eve fail, God kicks them out of the garden. He puts a cherubim, which was a terrifying angel with a flaming sword, to keep them, to guard the way of the tree of life so that they could not then access the tree of life and stay this way forever. God loves us too much. He, he, he's allowed, it, the world is broken, but it's not totally desolate. There's still goodness in it, but it's not so good that we would ever be tempted to mistake or to think that this was our final home, and that is God's mercy, so that we would seek the kingdom, so that we wouldn't be settled with this, but we would continue, our, our hearts would continue to long and ache for the thing we were created for, for the kingdom of life to come. And that kingdom is still being offered now, not on our own merit, not by our own testing, but is now being offered through faith. Second reason, the second aspect of the wisdom of God, why, why would God test mankind? Why would everyone's fate rely on what Adam did? How is that fair? You didn't even know, homie. I mean, he was, how long ago? And let you're responsible for his failure. That's what the Bible says. Well, God did not leave them in this failure. Look at Genesis 3.15. We've talked about this verse a lot, but let's talk about it again. It says this. In the middle of all these curses that God is laying down on Adam and Eve after their fall, he says this right in the middle of it. He says, he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. That enmity means eneminess, conflict, meaning he, does not, he will not let the union that they just created stand. He is going to break them apart so that they will not, he would not be locked into the, to the covenant, really, that she had just made with the serpent. God would break that. And how he would break it? He says that there will be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And then it changes to the first person or the singular, third person singular. He, a single offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And who is this? Who's the he? If you trace the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to talk about this next week. Really, the Old Testament is the story of tracing that offspring from the Garden of Eden all the way through the coming of Jesus. We get to Abraham and God promises that through his offspring all the nations would be blessed. We get to David uh, in the kingdom of Israel and God promises that one of his offspring would be the king of Israel to sit on the throne forever and by his obedience the nations would be saved. And then we get to Galatians 3 and Paul just straight up says it. That offspring is singular. It means Jesus Jesus is the one who was promised always to come and undo the awfulness that, the, that Adam and Eve created in the garden. He was what Paul calls the second Adam, the last Adam. He says, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Two Adams. The first Adam was a man of dust, a man of the earth. But the second Adam, Jesus, had come in to become a life-giving spirit to bring us out of the earthly realm and into 
the heavenly realms of glory through what he did. Adam failed. The first Adam failed in his obedience to God, but the second Adam succeeded. Second Adam, Jesus, he won. He was perfectly obedient to God and he crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and won for us our salvation. And why, now here's the thing, here's, here's the reason. Why did God do it that way? I think because there's really only two options, really. Either everyone goes through their own individual trial or you prove your obedience to God. And if we did that, you know what would have happened? Everyone would have failed. Everyone like Adam would have failed one after another. Adam had a better shot of being obedient to God, being created very good than anyone else who has ever lived. And he failed. And so if God made it so that everyone was under that same trial, the history of the world would be everyone failing and falling into condemnation and hell would be full and heaven would be empty at the end of the age. Or he could make it not depend on our obedience, but make it depend on a champion's obedience, on the obedience of someone else to where we wouldn't, all we would have to do is trust in what that person did for us, trust in what Jesus completed for us, which he did. And so do you know what that means? Do you know what Advent really means? The incarnation of God into the world? What it means is that because we couldn't be like God, that God had to come and be like us. And he did. The infinite divide between the creator and the creature that mankind is constantly trying to scale but never ever can. An unimaginable distance, an unimaginable descent into lowliness God did. He became like us so that we could then be like him. And here's the end of the story. Let me skip all the way to the very, very end, Revelation 22, and look what shows up. This is what we're waiting. This is what's waiting for us. And then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, And flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month, leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. That's what Jesus won for us. By his completed work, what he's done for us, what we are expectantly awaiting, is to have that access. We have access to the tree of life where we will live with God forever. And everything in this world and all the suffering will be gone. Because we know that that is, a, that is a real thing, we can wait, not in struggle, but we can wait in joyous expectation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word as you teach us throughout the history of humankind that Lord, you have created for us a future that is more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. But it's not just the Garden of Eden, but it's better than the Garden of Eden. 
It's everything that earth is plus heaven united with earth, bringing all things into absolute perfection. It means sharing in your glory. It means being perfectly righteous. It means not being even able to sin. It means having experience with sin so that we can see how awful it is. It means being able to see how you allowed in your wisdom to let sin run its course so that we could see evil for what it truly was so that when we receive glory from you, we would be even more awestruck at who you are and what you've done for us. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray during this Advent season and all through our lives that you would help us Help us to live in this evil age. Help us to live in our exile by being right-sized. Help us to be like the little children Jesus commanded us to be, just to trust you, to not be afraid because we know that you're powerful, because we know that you've won heaven and earth for us, and to just wait in patient and joyous expectation of the fulfillment of your promises because we know that you are our Father and that you love us and that you will not and have not ever lied and that what you have promised you will bring into fruition. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.